On Ash Wednesday in my sermon, I talked about three themes that will recur uh, during the uh, season of Lent, um, and we will revisit those in the next couple of weeks, repentance, reconciliation, and godly motives. But on this second Sunday in Lent, we also get a foretaste of what will come now to its fullness uh, during the great 50 days of Easter because we're being introduced to some degree uh, to what we might call the fourfold shape of the church's liturgy, uh, which finds its ground zero in the Easter liturgy. And there are four things that are important. One is the illuminative processes of God, symbolized during Easter uh, by the Paschal candle, but uh, the light of Christ has a twofold purpose, to show us the way in the dark, and also it is an internal illuminative process with the people of God as they come to see more clearly God's will and purpose for them as they live. So we'll, we'll talk about the readings uh, for today and see how that might fit in. The second thing is something we read about today, too, in the biblical witness and that is the history of salvation. And we'll talk about the fact that uh, the history of salvation is uh, enshrined in the biblical tradition and in the great uh, tradition with a capital T because the people of God saw that in their sacred literature uh, they understood God's saving work moving forward in history. And further to the point, in their own public and private prayer, they came to understand that their own personal history is part of the history of salvation, that you count, and God needs you to fulfill his purposes in the cosmos. And the third aspect that we're going to be introduced to, uh, which is very much part of the Lenten season, uh, is baptism. And we'll talk about that when we come to the gospel. And finally, the fourth part which is just implied because we do it every week, and that's to celebrate the Holy Eucharist, to receive the spiritual food and drink, which strengthens us and empowers us to be God's people in the world. So the three questions that come up from the readings today are how does God act in history? What does it mean to be born again? And how might we understand what, Christ, what it means when Christians speak of the power of the cross. There's a tendency with Christians to believe the way in which God acts in history is through the supernatural and the miraculous. And we certainly don't want to throw any cold water on that. But uh, when we speak about miracle and about the way God works, uh, we need to understand its possibility. St. Augustine said, uh, many people understand that miracles are something that occurs contrary to the laws of nature. But I would say that a miracle is something that uh, occurs contrary to the known laws of nature. 
So we don't want to throw cold water on that. But the truth of the matter is that God works through people most of the time. And God works through the ordinary and the commonplace most of the time. And so in the reading from Genesis this morning, we read about one of God's instruments, Abram. I should mention now, uh, the Hebrew Bible is full of plays on words, or adding a character and changing uh, the, the meaning. So Abram means, in Hebrew, exalted father. And Abraham means the father of many nations. So we begin the process now of Abram listening to God, obeying God, and being faithful. He goes. God now works through Abram slash Abraham. You know, this is very important in history because uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all call Abraham father. It's a starting place, by the way, for the interreligious dialogue that we need to be involved in deeply so that we understand we come from the same place. And it's important to, to, to begin to talk about what it is that we agree with on and not what we disagree about. So Abraham works in history, through history, and is faithful to God. So God works also uh, in, with, with the, the manners, morals, and customs of people. You know, we may read in this cycle of the Lenten or Holy Week readings the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. And there's a perfect example. It was customary in Canaanite religion, Abraham was a Canaanite, for people to sacrifice their firstborn son. How do we know this? We know it because we've dug up burial sites with little nine-year-old boys in them. And they believe that was a necessary thing to do in order to stay right with God. So when Abraham takes Isaac to sacrifice him, he's fulfilling his responsibility among his people. And as he goes to do this, God tells him he doesn't need to in the story. So I always like to think, what was it like if we had a video camera and Abraham came down the mountain with Isaac and showed up in the, in the camp with the boy? They're saying, gee, Abraham, I see you have Isaac with you. Yes. Well, how come? God told me that I didn't need to sacrifice Isaac. Doesn't make sense. Listen, Abraham, all of us have had to do this. If you don't do this, 
The lambs are going to drop. The crops are going to fail. We're all going to be in big trouble. What kind of God would require us to kill our firstborn children? You know, this boy, Isaac, is very precious to us because we have had him at an advanced age. Sarah had had no children. And then we had this boy. It just doesn't make sense. Now, here's what we know about the historical record, the archaeological record. You can date from approximately the time this story was written that there were fewer and fewer and ultimately no burial sites with the little nine-year or ten-year-old boys in them. The practice stopped. So God works through people, through our manners, morals, and customs to move in a more godly direction with regard to how we understand our place in the world and God's presence and power in our own personal and corporate lives. Now Paul takes this passage, or all of the a story about Abraham and the origins of the people of the covenant. And in Romans today, he speaks of the faith of Abraham that produced his righteousness, not something that he did. He was obedient through faith. Probably would have used the word immuna, Abraham would have, faithfulness. And I'm going to do this, and Paul says, by extension, that's what we have to do. We have to understand Abraham's obedience is somehow informative of our own behavior. And by extension, we need to know that in Paul's day, what are we talking about now, 48 A.D., 50 A.D.? You know, 1,800 years later, that all of us are the people of the covenant through Abraham. We are his children are too. We're part of this. And so we understand the historical continuity of the presence of God in the world. So that is what is affirmed in Genesis and in Romans today. In the gospel, John's gospel, we have the well-known story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night in the dark. He's in the dark. And this is the process of being illuminated and understands something now about what Jesus is going to say to him about what is necessary for salvation. Older translations, English translations of the Bible would say when we get to the place where what must I do, Nicodemus asks, the, the English is, you must be born again. And the New Revised Standard Version, which we read now and have since 1989 in the, Anglican, in the, uh, the American Anglican Church, says you must be born from above. And that's what it says in the original. You must be born from above. And what is the vehicle that provides us 
the ability to be born from above. Nicodemus is a literalist. He said, we have to go back into your mother's womb to be born again. This new birth. And Jesus says, this new birth has something to do with the water, with water and the spirit. So what is he talking about? He's talking about baptism as the sacramental means that we get grafted onto the body of Christ. Father Thomas Keating says that the grace we receive at baptism, grace in the sacraments, is the presence and action of Christ at every moment of our lives. The sacraments are ritual actions in which Christ is present in a special manner, confirming and sustaining the major commitments of our Christian lives. So when we talk endlessly now since the renewal and the liturgy of the relationship between Lent and baptism and Easter and baptism and baptism is part of the energy of the church, the presence of the Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, the Spirit in the community itself who is animated to go out and to be God's people in the world. And so today what is affirmed is the importance of baptism and the transformative power of that sacrament. Prior to him speaking, Jesus, in this passage about the cross, about what is known in many circles, particularly evangelical circles, I guess, the gospel in a nutshell... I'll get to that in a moment. Have you ever been to a ballpark where somebody has thrown a banner over left field and it says, John 3.16? Well, prior to him speaking this, which I'll get to in just a moment, Jesus speaks now to Nicodemus about the cross. And he uses the historical example or the example in the tradition of the people of God, the people of the covenant of Moses in the wilderness with the people of Israel. And they are in the wilderness at one point and the people are being bitten and stung by snakes and scorpions. And Moses raises a snake on a rod. And the people are healed. I wonder if that's where in medicine, it's from, there's a, you know, I can't, I can't remember. Yeah, that's, and you, it's sometimes in your doctor's office, you'll see one, right? Kind of looks like a cross, actually, but it's wrapped in snakes, you know? It's a symbol of healing. So the great question is, is it in any way possible for us to speak of the cross as an instrument of healing? You see? Is the suffering that the Savior went through, in fact, is the suffering that you and I experience in big and small ways uh, have some redemptive power? And so we need to think about how that might work You'll hear from me more than you want to probably as we go through Lent and Holy Week about the doctrine of the atonement. What does the cross mean? What does Jesus' death on the cross mean? And there are a lot of theories 
of the atonement. There's a great little book written in the 1930s um, by uh, a, I can't remember his name now, it's gone out of my head, but it has a whole chapter on the atonement, and he said, Ian Richardson, he says this. He said, uh, these theories of the atonement are just that, theories. So that means if they're theories, you and I are free to make up our own doctrine of the atonement. Right? And there is one that came from the Middle Ages that uh, we got from a, a theologian by the name of Abelard. Did you ever see the play Abelard and Heloise? Abelard created a theory of the atonement called the exemplarist theory. That looking at the cross, that the cross has healing power, a moral force that can transform people. Now, there are many flaws, some say, in the exemplarist theory, but you know, when uh, my first bishop in the Diocese of California was uh, named C. Kilmer Myers, and C. Kilmer Myers, it, during World War II, was in Hamburg, Germany, at the end of the war, and he was there for a religious conference and met with many German Roman Catholics and uh, Lutheran pastors in Nuremberg. And at one point, he was walking around the city, and you know, Nuremberg, by the time we got finished with it, was no higher than two feet in most places. So he's walking around, and he said to one of his Lutheran uh, colleagues, he said, how can you stand being here, doing this? And he turned to Kim Myers and he said, only look at the cross. Look at the cross. Only look at the cross. So the healing power, remember the word in both languages that the Bible was written in for to save is the same word that is used for to heal or to make complete. And it is part of the great tradition with a capital T that the cross of Christ has healing, saving power. And then it goes on to say in this part of John's Gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him should not perish but may have eternal life. That's John 3.16. So you've got the gospel in, in a nutshell. And it gives us the idea of the continuous power of God's presence in the world and what went on, what this all meant in some way. Remember, as you go through Lent, maybe more than any other season of the church year, your, uh, the importance of you as part of God's plan for the cosmos is central. And God always stays with you. God wants you to do well. God loves you. 
God saves you and God accepts you. And that's really at bottom what these passages mean today in the gospel. Amen.